Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. I'm joined this week by Equalizer soccer contributor, Pardeep Katri. This is a little bit of a different intro because we record this show on Mondays, and um, we recorded it early in the afternoon with the intention of talking about the championship game, which you're still going to hear that recording. Um, It's important to have discussions about the games. The Washington spirit deserve that, and the players of the Chicago Red Stars deserve that. not long after we recorded that, um, some more information came out about the resignation of Rory Dames, which we will discuss at the end of this episode. We have reconvened here in the evening in order to be able to do that. So if you're looking for that conversation, you can find that at the end of the episode. But first, we're going to talk about the game because the game was really good and these players deserve that spotlight. Um, so Pardeep, I was at the game, but you have a very important perspective because you were watching from home. How was the 2021 NWSL championship game on big CBS? It honestly, the first things first, it was an entertaining match. It was. So that was, that was exciting to see. I I wasn't that surprised by that considering, you know, these, especially the spirit have a really entertaining style, but, um, and the, and the dynamic switch for the second half really proved to be very entertaining. Um, you know, if you want to talk about broadcast notes, I did end up also watching the pregame show. I thought in terms of our broadcast it was really good. I found the halftime programming outside of the first half analysis to be a little strange, though. What was it? <laughs> so it was a lot of talk of sponsorship. They had okay. a representative from Ally for, mm-hmm. uh, answer one question about being a sponsor, and then they I believe cut to commercial and they came back from commercial and they had Marla messing mm-hmm. and they had Ali Krieger and Marla messing was asked a question about, you know, being in during a very pivotal moment in the NWSL's history. And she offered a really, really vague answer that didn't provide really any information about anything. And then Ali Krieger was there to answer a question about sponsorship. So outside of halftime analysis, there's a lot of talk of sponsorship. <laughs> you know, that's funny. You're right. That's not that's not like scintillating television, is it? But um, I do have to say, though, being on the ground, talking a little bit more generally, um, Ally was huge. Ally and MasterCard both um, clearly invested dollars into making these playoffs feel cool for the people there. Um, and also it felt like, you know, I, I spoke to some MasterCard representatives. I spoke to a person at Octagon, um, because you, when you're at, when you're at this thing, you're kind of in and around you, you all randomly end up at the same brewery at 7 PM. And so you start talking to people about stuff and the sponsorship commitment is very high. And, and I think that that is like, that is good news, especially with the year that the NWSL has had, and I believe will continue to have. I think that that's kind of sponsorship commitment is good. Does it turn into that kind of stuff where you have these weird odes to business in your sports uh, broadcast? Maybe. Um, no, but maybe I that's the deal. It. That's the deal with the devil that the NWSL is in right now. Um, uh, uh, I, I, maybe this is naive on my part, but I would hope the NWSL and any other league on planet Earth can work out sponsorship deals where they don't have to make the halftime show about the sponsors. I agree with you 100%. That's a funny note. I didn't know that. I haven't, I haven't seen the broadcast. That's, that's pretty funny. Um, yeah. 
So we're going to, let's do this in depth. I, I think the game deserves it. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the part uh, where we say that the Washington spirit are your 2021 um, NWSL champions. Congratulations to the spirit. Uh, really good team. Really, really good team. I felt very lucky to get to watch them play in this configuration live at least once, because when I had gotten to see them in Chicago, it was at, it was in the pretty much the middle of the regular season. It was in August. And that was when they were still Richie Burke's team and they've, they've changed a lot and they've grown a lot and they were able to make adjustments and win not only this game, but pretty much be the best team in the league for the second half of the season. So going into the match, there's a little bit of, uh, there's questions about who Chicago is going to be able to play. Right. Um, we don't, we don't know it before the game at at this point, before the injury report comes out, like we don't know Kalia Watts status. We don't know Mallory Pugh's status. We don't know Kayla Sharples' status. We don't know Casey Kruger's status. Um, and then we find out that Pugh's good to go, right? Pugh has cleared the 10 day COVID quarantine period. She was able to travel down to Louisville to be able to train with the team that Friday, which indicates that she entered quarantine um, pretty early, actually, after the quarterfinal, which which it was interesting to find out. But um, that, I think, posed a little bit more controversy than it needed to. I think a lot of people were trying to be kind of cute with that information. And so it makes it seem much more suspicious than it actually was, which is that I think she legitimately <laughs> cleared her 10 day COVID period, but just tell people that, you know, um, we would love some transparency. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's silly too. It's just silly little stuff that makes things seem way more suspicious than they need to. Um, I know if we wanted to make this a pet peeve, one of my pet peeve episodes, that, that's one of my things. Just, just be clear about simple stuff right you you don't have to be complicated about stuff that doesn't need to be complicated yes exactly not asking for a lot hopefully (laughs) um but so they have pew no no watsill no kruger right the long-term injuries are what they are but they do have pew and i think everyone thought oh well maybe this match really is like a real 50 50 toss-up did you have like a favorite did you have a person or a team that you thought was gonna see this one out before the game started um I honestly, if I had to put my money on somebody, it would have been on Chicago. I just, they seemed really unstoppable after that Portland game. And mm-hmm. that's total recency bias on my part. But uh, I was very curious if anybody would be able to sort of take the Red Stars in their current form and be able to break them down at at any point this year. I was figuring that was maybe a next year project for somebody. Yeah. I thought maybe it would be too soon for somebody, but clearly it wasn't too soon for the spirit. Right. So let's get into the beginning of the match. So Chicago does have Pew. Um, Washington reacts to the, you know, they, they've been out with Tor- without Tori Huster for, this is their second game without her. And their approach to that with their starting 11 um, as pointed out by Jason Anderson of Black and Red United, is they done, didn't really try to replace Houston because they can't, right? She had been playing in their midfield. But what they did is they basically just took the player who they thought was their 12th best player and put her on the field, which meant that um, Tara McEwen played, started at, at forward in this game, and then Ashley Sanchez kind of fell back into more of a number 10 role in the midfield rather than being part of the forward line. Um Game starts out pretty quickly paced, right? Big moment, it seemed, right? Both teams were amped. 
um, which is not really Chicago's game, but they were, they were up for it. Right. Um, and then in like, I think it was the 13th or the 14th minute, Vanessa DiBernardo sits down and that's that. And you think to yourself, oh, this is just going to be another one of these games for Chicago. Um, not her loss was not the worst case scenario in that Katie Johnson was very able to slide back into sort of that false nine ten role. They brought Mackenzie Doniak on to replace Johnson's role as a forward, but just emotionally, physically, as Chicago had more players go down, you know, you're saying that like you were thinking that it would be impossible for anybody to break Chicago down, but it's like, at what point can Chicago simply no longer continue, you know? Yeah, they really, oh my gosh, it's like they really tested that limit of how much, the question was how much can happen to you before you actually do break down and I guess the answer was a lot for Chicago but in the end they did it was just too much yeah it it reminds me a little bit of that rain team from a couple Mm. of years ago that also had a really ridiculous injury um just uh, just so many injuries and they did it I mean they made it to the playoffs but right red stars went a little bit further than them and honestly they almost pulled it off yeah yeah no I I agree watching that um you know I I said this right after the game but no it's it's heartbreaking for those players because you saw that they really just put everything into it that they possibly could um so let's talk about the first half so despite this Vanessa DiBernardo goes down but despite this Chicago kind of gets the game that they want, right? It's a little bit slower pace. They they pretty much do successfully take Ashley Sanchez out of the game. They do have space that they give up on the wings. Trinity Rodman had a lot of space on the ball. Did in the second half too, but it was a little bit more um, intentional. But Washington wasn't able to pull defenders centrally, which is what they like to do. And so it seems like Chicago is about to sort of grind this out to a zero zero tie um, at halftime. And then Kelly O'Hara. So it's like good news. It's like bad news. Good news for Chicago. Right. So bad news. Kelly O'Hara commits a tackle on Mallory Pugh, which ultimately knocked Pugh out of the game. Um, In that moment, it's right before halftime. Chicago doesn't want to do the sub until they can do like a halftime evaluation. Right. Just to make sure. Um, see if she can go, see if she can't. She slowly walks off the field with the trainer. Chicago's playing with 10. This has sucked the life out of the game completely, which is something that Chicago actually thrives on. <laughs> Aaron Wright <laughs> takes the ball up the left wing, crosses Kelly O'Hara, uh, finds Rachel Hill running back post, one nothing Red Stars at the half. Um, so well played by Aaron Wright on very, that yeah. Point. So, yeah, maybe what were your halftime thoughts? on again it's this balance of attrition right like they were they were about to lose pew for the rest of the game um which was going to and ultimately did end up being kind of a disaster if they needed to come back right um but they got that goal and you think well maybe this is chicago maybe they ride this out the full 90 right yeah i mean like i sort of mentioned before i feel like the red star season was sort of asking this question of how many injuries are too many injuries? And the answer for a while was like, oh, we haven't hit that point yet. And right, it's sort of that moment right before the half where you're like, oh, 
boy, they're going to do it again. They're just going to do it again. I felt that there was like, to me, I just felt that the momentum would have shifted then. And that would have been, you know, it might've been ball game for the spirit because we haven't really seen this version of the red star sort of after perfecting their system, Mm -hmm. actually get outplayed Mm -hmm. in their system. So, I mean, the onus for me was still on the spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And what we heard after the match, actually, they told this, they told this to Marissa Pilla immediately after halftime and they um, repeated it after the game is that, and I found this, you know, being this weekend was great because as everybody knows, due to COVID protocols, rightful, rightful COVID protocols, you know, we just haven't gotten a lot of FaceTime with players this year. And this was the first time, obviously, that I've been able to speak to the Washington spirit, um, this group of the spirit ever. And I was so impressed by how process oriented and principle oriented they were and how bright this team is. This is a very smart team. So is Chicago. These were two very intellectual teams in this way. And so when they go into halftime, they were like focusing on the things that worked focusing on the things that didn't focus on improving those things. And they kind of ignored the scoreline. I don't think they were too rattled by it. They were like, okay, here's some of these movements that are working for us. We're going to keep highlighting that. Here's what we think we can get them to do. Um, Here are the parts of the field that we want to attack. And then let's just go out and play 45 minutes. And I think that that mindset really helped them. And it, it does come from, you know, I think if anyone has read any piece about the spirit after this game, people are talking about the adversity, right? But I think it's also just a comfortability with adjustments from a losing position, from a tied position. This has been a very long season, and these teams have played so many different versions of this type of game that they're really good at honing in on the changes that they need to make. And I think that's exactly what we saw in the second half. Um, yeah, it was a really, I mean, we're talking about two teams that have sort of found ways to believe in themselves, despite mm-hmm. the things that have been thrown at them. But obviously the spirit is probably the team most emblematic of that in the entire league right now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it helps them that even outside of all of that, they have one of the best squads right. in the league. They're very talented. So they can just. Yeah, I mean, it's a really well-balanced squad with great individual players who can also obviously play really well collectively. So, you know, I have to imagine it's really easy to sort of have faith in your own ideas when you know that there are great problem solvers. Yeah. If you you just put it in a vacuum, you know, these players are really good at doing that. But even if you add some context to it, like you've mentioned, they've been problem solving for a while and and they came into this on a, on an unbeaten run. They hadn't lost since those two forfeits in September. Right. Yeah. No, they haven't lost since August. Um, right. And I think they, what we saw also in the second half, and this is like always a balance, right? Because I think what Washington did was very impressive and we're going to talk about that. However, Washington was healthier. Washington was they're younger, right? 
they do literally have two fewer games on their legs than Chicago does due to those forfeits, which obviously Washington would have rather played them, but it is just true that they've had a little bit. They've had some fewer games that they, that they've had to play and Chicago just could not maintain the control that they had been able to put over the first half. And, and that's where things started to change. Washington started winning duels. They started winning duels higher up in the field. And that's something that Andy Sullivan had talked about um, on, on media day before the, before the game, she said one of her favorite problems to solve is how to commit pressure progressively closer to, to her opponent's goal. And they began to do that really well. Trinity Rodman. um, Again, you talk about a young, highly talented person with no fear starts. She even said this after the game as well. She was frustrated in the first half. She said to herself, Hey, get your head back in this game. Don't let this happen to you. She takes that crack on the post, right? In like the 60th minute or so. Yeah. And that wakes everything up. Yeah. Felt like that really unlocked everything. Yeah. Um, It was a shock. It was like a little shocker of like Chicago isn't going to be able to put this game to sleep. Washington is going to be able to find ways to come back. They're going to get into dangerous places. They were getting more space centrally. Again, I mentioned that before. That's what Chicago did not want. Chicago was struggling to cover the spaces centrally. And then it started to feel not so much like Chicago was seeing the game out, but that they were just hoping that Washington would miss, essentially. Um, And as that cart sort of ramped up and became a little bit more intense, Tara Davidson overcommits against Tara McEwen. Very fair penalty. Obvious, right? Yeah, in a way, like, you know, I'm the Chicago person, but I'm glad that that was called because that ref was missing a lot of calls. And yes. Oh, one thing on the broadcast. I don't know if anybody heard in the stadium, but at one point, I think it's during extra time. Chris Ward is telling the fourth official to tell the main referee to get their act together. Is that what it was? Yes. Yes. To get their act together. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a great one for the ref. No, not a good, another, another not amazing refereeing performance. Um, And yeah, I, I am in a way, I am glad that that call, that call was made correctly because it was a penalty. McEwen should be rewarded for what she had been able to do, pulling that space at the top of the box. Um, Andy Sullivan almost does not capitalize on this though. And that's where your heart kind of jumps into your throat. Um, it was a weak penalty to the point where it actually kind of scooted underneath Cassie Miller's hip. If the penalty had been taken better to the same side, it's possible that Miller might've saved it. Um, so that's also a little bit where you say, well, maybe this is just Washington's day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't a great penalty, but I mean, to be fair, like they had Rodman was really close right before that they were right. The momentum had fully shifted on their side so i felt like i mean it did have a feeling of mel even if they didn't score the penalty they still looked okay enough right to get it later to be honest i thought the penalty could have the penalty could have disrupted their momentum entirely maybe it wouldn't have i don't know yeah it's true a saved at the end of the first half right a saved penalty would have shifted that momentum back in chicago's favor a little bit right um though I found I felt like once once Washington got the equalizer, 
they even let their foot off the gas a little bit. It felt like once they got the equalizer, they settled back into sort of this tied game um, rather than really pushing for a winner. It felt like they had a little bit of a higher tempo when they were looking for that equalizer rather than after they got it. Um, And I also think Chicago did brilliantly not to concede a second goal. I thought, I thought, I thought Washington was going to get a quick one, like right after the penalty. I thought that that was going to be it. Um, which almost makes it worse, right? For the Red Stars. It's like, this is the whole oh, thing with sure. them. This is the whole thing with them. They did so well. And and yet it just, it did not seem like it was going to be enough. Um, yeah. Tatum Malazzo was down in pain at the end of regulation, right? And they had to keep her on because they had to get Biancas and George ready to come on. Biancas and George hasn't played in a game since the middle of the season. Like Chicago just was throwing bodies on the field who could oh, run. yeah. And, anybody who was there. Right. And unfortunately what that meant is once the game was tied and actually they proved that, I mean, Chicago did get a couple really nice chances at the end of extra time, but it seemed like they just did not. It's not that they weren't trying to get forward. It's just that they didn't have the personnel to do that effectively. Um, yeah. Right. They were still in it at times. They weren't ever like out, out of it, mm-hmm. but it really, you, for the first time really in a while, you saw the injury crisis really, really just play it just out in front of you. became too much, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so we go into extra time. They do make it to regulation, tied 1-1. People were starting to think penalties, maybe. You know, Washington themselves. Oh, I was, I was definitely thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Washington looked tired, started to look tired themselves. Extra time is a difficult proposition. It's hard to get a game winner in extra time. Usually that's why extra time is useless. Usually it does just go to penalties. Um, Because you're watching people who are very tired just drag themselves through another half hour. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, Except the Spirit actually score kind of early in extra time. I think there was, I mean, I I think I said this in the last little episode, but there was at least 20 minutes left in the extra time periods to... um, to play through after they got that goal. Um, Big game for Kelly O'Hara, right? She kind of gets flipped on the goal that Chicago scores, but she really turns that around. She was a huge ball winner for them in the second half and in extra time. That header that she got, beautiful service from Trinity Rodman. It's that sort of that, what we were just talking about where the arc of the game was going this way. Trinity Rodman gets a little bit of time. She very confidently sends a wonderfully curling ball into the far post. Basically what Kelly O'Hara does is what she had been doing the whole second half, which is winning an aerial duel and directing the ball on frame. Um, Did it feel like game over? What did you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it deflated the entire, um, I think it deflated the red stars a little bit though, to their credit. I don't, like I said, I don't think they were ever out, out of it. You know, I'm not that harsh on the way they performed after the fact, but it was, it was hard not to think that was it for Washington, that they had done it. And like you said, Kelly O'Hara was huge for them. Trinity Rodman. I don't think we actually have talked about her a lot yet today, but I think, after Bledsoe was maybe one of their more consistent players on Saturday. I think she was tremendous too. Agreed. Yeah. 
Um, other players I want to shout out from, from Washington. I thought, you know, obviously Trinity Robin was incredible. I suspect actually she couldn't get MVP because of the sponsor. It was the Budweiser uh, finals MVP oh, award. That makes more sense. And so I suspect actually that she was not eligible for that due to not being 21, which is very funny. People were like, what? I mean, Bledsoe was amazing and Bledsoe saved the game late. Right. But it also, yeah, you were just like, come on. No, I think it literally was a sponsorship issue. Um, I think they, I mean, I think they usually have more cans of beer at the post-match press conference. Right. There was only the one that Kelly O'Hara brought in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, No, that was, there was a very funny, (laughs) they were both asked, they were both asked after the match, how they were going to celebrate in Trinity Rodman genuinely like i don't think she was like winking or anything like that she goes i don't know why you're asking me i'm gonna be in my hotel room because she can't it's not like she can go anywhere (laughs) yeah Um, but yeah trinity robin was amazing i thought i do want to say that aubrey bledsoe had a very good game um she came up very big at the very end right when chicago got two nice uh last ditch chances that really nice across the body shot from mackenzie doniak where she was able to get low and, and grab that. And then the shot from uh, Aaron Wright that kind of skirted off of the crossbar. Um, I thought Emily Sonnet and Sam Staub had another excellent performance. Yeah. Their defensive yep. positioning is incredible. And again, with O'Hara and Sonnet, it felt specifically like, especially in that second half, the game was getting physical and the ref was letting that happen. And those two were willing to set that physical tone in terms of, in terms of the duels. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just a really good comprehensive full team performance from the Washington spirit. They were the better team on the day. The red stars obviously should be very proud of themselves, um, for what they were able to accomplish for each other when their legs were no longer (laughs) working. Um, and, on to the uncertain, maybe a more certain future. I mean, we're about, this is probably where the discussion is going to go next week, which is the spirit feel a little bit like they are on after the uncertainty, right? They're like post uncertainty. There are still some things with this team that need to get taken care of, but it's like they've come through it for Chicago. Right. The uncertainty is still a little bit greater, which also maybe makes this loss sting a little bit more. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. Final thoughts on either team, party, or even just the game in general. It was nice and close. Just, uh, did you think it was a good capper for, for this season? Did you think it was a good good showcase? Yeah, I thought so. Look, I think the most important things, uh, the most important thing when it is a showcase, like a final on, you know, CBS, is the game good? Are there players that really stood out that, put in some memorable performances. The answer to that was yes. So enjoyable game for sure. Um, As for, you know, capping off a season worth of games, I thought it made for a really interesting thing narrative wise. Um, It was nice to see a first time winner of the NWSL championship, Mm -hmm. which both of those teams would have been. Um, and I think, I think, and I think I said this a little bit earlier, but I think the spirit is just so emblematic of this season in the NWSL because sure, those set of players have to go through a lot, but every last player in this league has had to deal with a lot. And to be able to still go out there, to still put 
on a show to still be able to do their jobs when, quite frankly, people are asking you to do it and doing it so effectively. All I can say is that I'm I am impressed by their professionalism as much as I'm impressed by their skill level. Yeah, agreed. You know, the funny thing, maybe I'll end on this. Again, you don't know until you really talk to players kind of what's going on and what's going through their heads. And what struck me this this weekend was, um, you know, the managerial change obviously was very significant, um, though I think in a positive way. Like, I think all of the players felt way better about the team after Richie Burke left. Um, the ownership issue is still ongoing, right? Though, but what I think, I think the thing... When Washington Spirit players talk about adversity and they talk about things that made this season harder and they talk about what they had to band together about, they're talking about the forfeits. They hated the forfeits. And that, I think, is the thing that made all of them come together and say, well, it kind of feels like the league wants us to fail. And what we're going to do is win in spite of that. Um. And I think that that is so classically like pro soccer brain, right? (laughs) Yeah. That if that's not the D one athlete mentality, (laughs) like you can take my coach and my dignity, but if you, you hand us a loss, that's personal, you know? Um, Yeah. And so I thought that was funny is the wrong word, but it did seem like some insight into what it is that, uh, that they were talking about. So yeah, congratulations to the spirit, truly a a very well-played game. Um, also congratulations to the red stars who did themselves very proud. Um, and now we are officially next year. They will be less injury prone because there's probably still potential that they could, they could win the whole thing. I think the futures, yeah, you were very unlucky. I think the future's bright. I really do think the future is bright for Chicago. Um, I think this was a transformative year for them as well. And I think that that kind of thing does pay dividends in the future. Um, so that was part one. Yeah. I just wanted to get into the game. It's a game that deserves it. It's a season that deserves it. It's teams that deserve it. Uh, and we'll just, uh, we'll do a little bit of some, some cleanup in, in part two. We're going to talk a little bit about end of season awards. We'll talk about one major trade that was announced today um, for San Diego and just little off seasony things as we move into, we are now officially in pre-draft mode, I think. So thank you guys for listening to part one. We'll be back in just a sec with part two. All right. Welcome back to part two of this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I'm your host, Claire Watkins, joined this week by Party Catry. Give us a rating, give us a review, say something nice. It helps people find us. It is very, very useful um, as we sort of just keep plugging along, right? Season's over, but uh, we keep going. So We've got some off-season <laughs> stuff to talk about. Well, let's actually do a little bit of end-of-season stuff, and then we'll talk off-season. We did have the end-of-season awards announced. Uh, league MVP, Jess Fishlock. Defender of the Year, Caprice Didasco. Rookie of the Year, Trinity Rodman. Goalkeeper of the Year, Aubrey Bledsoe. Coach of the Year, Laura Harvey. General thoughts, Party? Pretty, it's a decent some, list, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this last time or whenever we talked about this, but... Uh, you know, everybody that was nominated more or less was qualified to be there. So everybody here is a deserving winner. I think, you know, there were some that are not a surprise. <laughs> Trinity Rodman winning Rookie of the Year is not a surprise. 
I think the one mildly surprising thing is maybe Laura Harvey winning coach of the year. But again, it's not a huge surprise. Yeah, I thought the coach of the year shortlist was flawed, um, just even in the fact that I, I, you know, again, no disrespect to Scott Parkinson. I don't fully understand the logic behind his inclusion there. Um, Yeah. Seems like if you were going to nominate a coach who wasn't there the whole year, Chris Ward, right. Would be that coach. Um, And then of the short list, I, I am kind of fascinated by it going to Harvey instead of Parsons, just because and they changed the percentages of the voting block this year to heavily favor actually like players. Like this was mostly voted upon by people who actually participate in the league. And it always feels a little bit like a survey of like, Oh, so not a bunch of parson heads in the league. Are there? It's they, they like, (laughs) you know? And so I was like, that's just, you know, it's one of those things where you want the right person to be recognized, but it's also is a little bit just like, huh, taking the temperature of the actual player pool there. um, I think is, is kind of fascinating. Um, I would yeah. love to know like a breakdown of player votes or a general manager votes or club votes, media votes and fan votes. I know MLS does that. I do. I, I would love for the NWSL to do that. Well, NWSL, they, they said other- it was, it's 50%, 50% players and GMs. Oh, but I meant like the actual results. Oh, the actual like, results. Uh, I know. Like, I would like love 58% that. 58% yeah. of players voted for. Yes. No, I would whatever. love that. Um, as well, I would, yeah, because then we would know kind of where the winds come from, which would be nice. Um, agreed. yeah, but yeah, I think Didasco is a fabulous pick. I don't understand there, you know, that was another one with the shortlist. I don't understand why Megan Klingenberg wasn't on that shortlist, but you know, it kind of is what it is. Uh, but Caprice Didasco was fantastic this year. She wholly deserves that award. Um, Fishlock for MVP maybe waited a little bit as a, uh, career achievement award you know she's someone who has has been in and around the league for a very long time it's like uh the person it's like a little bit you know like someone getting an academy award for the movie after they should have gotten the academy award for (laughs) you know um yeah but she was great this year she was really really good very consistent um so yeah i I thought it was fine certainly much better than years past yeah a little while that angela salem was right at the bottom of the mvp uh, yeah, that's wild Candace. to me. Yeah, I don't know. What yeah, that's really there. maybe the big one. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know exactly what happened there. Right. It's like it was very, very cool that a non forward won, but then the other non forward just doesn't get any respect on the list at all. And you're yeah. like, wait, what's the logic here? Or like Aubrey Bledsoe, goalkeeper of the year, didn't even make the first or second 11. And I was like, how did that yeah. happen? Um, I don't know. I, I was trying to think about that myself. Yeah. I will say that that was the one that surprised me when I was voting. I I think I knew going in sort of how I felt about everything. I will say that with goalkeeper of the year, I was looking at Bella Bixby, uh, Kaylin Sheridan and Aubrey Bledsoe's names. And I went in thinking like, Oh, you know, maybe Sheridan, maybe Bixby. But when kind of confronted with it, I was like, no, the goalkeeper of the year this year was Aubrey Bledsoe. And the fact that she didn't make a lot of teams of the month doesn't, change that like it's just true that she was the goalkeeper of the year this year and so right i mean those are different measurements right exactly team of the month is different from team of the year yeah totally and for goalkeepers especially you know it's about the whole body of work it's not just about one or two games um so yeah i was fine with that i think um good year i mean a lot of really really nice performances put together 
you could do a list. You could do three elevens, I think, of of players who had yeah. really, really nice years, which I think is great. Um, I mean, so, with these, with the first and second eleven this year, we can officially put the uh, twenty nineteen one in the rear view mirror. It's true. <laughs> we didn't get enough midfielders on these two elevens. That's my big complaint. Um, you could they only they allowed you to, to pick. They allowed you to pick six generally attacking players, meaning both midfields and forwards were thrown into that same pool. And um, it favored the forwards pretty heavily, which I think is unfair because I think that there were a number of very, very nice Sullivan, but like players who played in this final, you know? Um, Yeah. But it was predictable. If you're going to put midfielders and forwards in the same category, forwards are always going to win out amongst a big group. Mm Mm-hmm. Agreed. But also those so forwards, maybe they should have formatted it differently. I don't yeah, know. But also those forwards were deserving. Sydney LaRue was deserving Rachel Daly. Like just, yeah, I don't know. it's tough because they, they played very well, but positionally it was a bit odd. Um, so now let's move into maybe the one final piece of true off season news. The San Diego wave football club. I am not going to refer to them as wave FC because that personally upsets me. I'm going to call them the San Diego wave. <laughs> uh, why would you do it? They're the San Diego wave, not wave FC. Um, I, I heard. Did you they're... see in their announcement video that they had like people doing the wave? They had clips of that. In I them? did. They love They're They're very much leaning into the, in, the full imagery of, of the wave concept, but they have a player. See, I liked, I liked the name before, but then when they put the clips of people doing the wave in the video, it's like, no, yeah, not no, that I can't kind of support wave. this anymore. I'm sorry. Right. You um, have the real waves. <laughs> beachy, just a beachy vibe. Well, they got, they got someone who I, I feel has beachy vibes. Abby Dahlkemper. They have a player. They have I mean, one she is from, player. She is from Southern California, right? Or well, she went to UCLA. Somewhere. She went to UCLA. So okay. that's, uh, that's in, in her, in her history. But um, yeah, so this loan, not loan between Houston and North Carolina comes to its natural end. North Carolina sends Dahl Kemper to San Diego. I kind of wish they could have just told us all of this when the Houston deal was done in the first place. Cause I do believe that that final resting place for her um, was in motion even then. So the fact that it waited this long to get announced is kind of silly. Uh, North Carolina gets from San Diego, their 2023 first round draft pick in $190,000. They do not get immunity from the expansion draft, which is interesting to me. Um, Doll Kemper is a great player to build around. I think, I think you starting, starting with a center back is very sound, right? You uh, that's your spine that you're building um, with the understanding that they're going to be able to get one other allocated player. Um, though alloc- allocation is about to cease to exist again, off season stuff. We'll, we'll talk about it, but um, good first signing. They say they have more on the way. I I've heard the angel they city kind of have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's this idea. I think there's this idea from the public that just because things are not announced that angel city and, and San Diego both have not been signing people. They have, they, they are doing things. <laughs> there are things happening yeah. behind the scenes. They're going to have a team, but um, we're about there to start. There will be players yes. on their team. Actual players. Yeah. yeah, we got we got the Angel City kit. Um, their home kit was was revealed. And it was all of these little bits and pieces that turn them my, from. My take on the Angel City kit, it's a very nice geometric design on there, but it doesn't pop from a distance at all. So it's actually a bad choice because it just looks like polka dots from a distance i'm 
why why no pink socks i will say this i will say this i i have a pet one okay we're doing a pet peeve podcast p let's do it all right pet peeve podcast if i don't like when a team has an interesting color in their official color scheme and then they are afraid to put it on the kit and this actually happens a lot with pink put pink on your kit why are you putting pink in your crest? Why are you quote unquote brave enough to put pink in your crest without putting pink on your kit? That yep, that's it. I I don't like it. These when are someone... the pressing questions. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we'll have to do some reporting <laughs> on that. I'll call Nike. I'll just call Nike up and be like, "Why not pink?" You know, uh, and Angel City comments and Angel City as sides. well. Yes, though they 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 are complicit in the yep. anti pink agenda. Yes, Natalie Portman. Where is pink where's the pink um we'll reach out to her directly yeah but we do have I, I think maybe just to to wrap this up you know maybe a little bit of a shorter podcast this week but uh really just wanted to focus on that game but now we do so we're moving into this next stage the california teams are beginning to become actual teams um they moved the college draft up to december there's a lot of uncertainty right now. And this is maybe worth talking about one thing that Marla Messing said this weekend that stuck with me. And I think is just good to sort of contextualize where all of this is going. Um, Messing was asked about the CBA timeline. It was just asked like where you're at with negotiations right now, at which point do you think that's going to be done? Because I think the general consensus is that the CBA needs to be finished really soon, sooner rather than later. But what Messing said, and I don't think that this is uh, BS, I think that this is true, is that there are still a lot of moving parts um, to this next stage. We, the U.S., are um, in their own CBA negotiations that they, unlike the league, which does not have a CBA at all, they are entering a timeline where their CBA lapses, right? And in the history of the two unions, the NWSL players association and the U S women's national team players association have not collaborated. They're very friendly. They share resources, all that sort of stuff, but they are two different bargaining units. If the U S CBA does lapse, do they join the NWSLPA? What purview here changes allocation? How do you work through allocation rules in an NWSL CBA? when you don't have a ratified CBA on the U S side, which rumors have been for the whole year that allocation is going away. Federation allocation is going away. Um, so these two drafts, I think are going to be operating on the old rules that are about to completely go away. (laughs) So we're in a weird spot with all of this. Um, yeah. Do you think that's better though, party to just kind of get all of this done with the understanding of what we have right now, rather than just waiting to find out what happens on January 1st, 2022. Oh, it's definitely better to get it done before that. It's, I have to imagine it's better for every single person involved, but yeah, the, I mean, look, these are going to be the, probably the biggest themes out of American women's soccer from now until we see another I mean, until next year, we don't have a lot of games left. We just have the U.S. Women's National Team games on the calendar now. In Australia, yeah. Yeah. I 
I'm very curious to see where this goes. It's been a very, I mean, again, like probably the biggest story out of women's soccer in the U.S. this year is labor negotiations Mm -hmm. about, you know, these workers. I mean, the players are workers find uh, negotiating for their own rights as workers. And they probably have the best leverage that they've ever had during these negotiations. Mm-hmm. So it'll be, uh, I will be fascinated to see by what, uh, what the outcome is there joining the NWSLPA, I think, uh, and just making that the one big PA would be very, very interesting to me because that doesn't, at least in American soccer, that doesn't exist in the same way. Right. There, you know, like, the like the U.S. men do not share a CBA with MLS players, and that's mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Like there are a ton of men's national team players that don't actually even play in MLS. Right. So, but I am curious to see how the labor situations resolve themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that it, I mean, which just I feel like we're talking without a lot of context that I'd really like right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I was going to say like, yeah, I think that we don't know what's going to happen, but I do genuinely think that the energy has improved. And I think that we, the people in the room, I think care a little bit more, I think are a little bit lighter on their feet, understand the space a little bit better and really want to get this done while understanding the challenges of, of what that might be. Um, or at the very least, if they don't all care more, they all understand certain things are different now yeah all of which to say get ready for some player movement we're gonna see some of that i think we're gonna you know doll kemper's one um we're gonna see some players go to europe we're gonna see some players try to maneuver trades to some different teams we're gonna see obviously the california teams take some players the league's gonna look very different next year just in where people are and honestly after the year we have all had i don't think that's necessarily bad i think fresh starts are exciting so um for sure so more to talk about next time all right so we have made it to this last discussion of the week um now i again i feel i want to timestamp this We're recording this at, at 9 30 eastern um on on monday evening because i there will be better reflections, I think, on all of this with more time, but it is still really important to talk about. And it does shade this entire weekend and the year and the years uh, that Rory James spent as the head coach of the Chicago Red Stars. Um, a piece came out in the Washington Post today. He, he did, you know, he tendered his, he uh, turned in his resignation at midnight central time um, the day after the game, which seemed ominous, right? And then a piece in the Washington post came out uh, with conversations with, with testimonial from Kristen press from 2018 and an official investigation that was submitted to us soccer. Um, some uh, testimonial from Jen Hoy, who was a player for the Chicago red stars and Sam Johnson, who was also a player for the Chicago red stars, as well as a number of anonymous sources who are still playing in the league um, about Rory Dames being emotionally abusive. The conversation ranged, and this is not the first time we've seen this with these coaches. Some of this was very open verbal abuse, um, just in yelling 
in practices, very personal attacks on players. Some of it was manipulation, whether it was sort of an obsession with players or texting them at all hours um, and basically trying to groom them, quite frankly, um, into being very reliant on him. And when they would try to break away from that, they would be punished. And then the third thing in this, and I think that this is important to also state, and this is where this is, I am reflecting on this a little bit, is it's also an abusive use of the NWSL's rules. And that is something where some of this information has been public for a long time, whether it's his comments in postgame or the way he has used the expansion draft or trades or a number of different powers given to teams through the NWSL's rules. And he has abused those. So I think I'm just going to open the floor to you, Pardeep, a little bit. Um, Tell me how you feel. Tell me your thoughts on sort of the different elements of this. You know, I'm going to be honest. I'm still processing a little bit. Still want to have this conversation knowing that I think I can probably do better in the future, but just, yeah, take it away party. What are, what are you thinking right now? Sure. Um, I've had a few hours to reflect on it. And I think overall, the thing that I remain, I don't know if shocked is the word, but constantly disappointed in is the way people in power in this league have bended over backwards to, to protect abusers, people who have found ways to abuse the system in every way, the way you outlined about Rory Dames. It, and it's really sad that while each and every part of the report is heavy and really hard and sad to read. It's not so surprising anymore. And that's really, really sad. Not surprising. And I think, I mean, I think Molly Hensley Clancy, who wrote the piece and has done some very important investigative work for the Washington post because she cares about the NWSL and the players in it is, um, just how normalized this all became. And it reminded me of some of the reporting in the piece about Paul Riley and the piece about Richie Burke, about how it's very easy for these coaches to make players not only feel, but actually be very isolated. Those coaches uh, control whether a player plays in the game, the coach controls the way they interact with media. Um, And, I think that it's something that for a long time uh, we even saw in the piece, right? Uh, Sunil Gulati told, uh, told Kristen press that it was just hard coaching, right? It was just being an intense guy in 2014 in 2014. Um, This is the other, this is another element, right? Which is that U S soccer was told about this and decided that it wasn't that bad, right? They, they didn't think that it warranted, any action. And one has to assume at this point that Chicago Red Stars leadership felt the same way. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think that this is something where I, 
I will say being someone who covers Chicago closely, um, what you always heard was like, that's just Rory being Rory is a thing that was said a lot. Um, whenever he would get kind of aggressive, uh, pointed. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, I'm not going to act like it didn't happen with media sometimes too. Um, and you would just be like, Oh, that's just Rory being Rory, you know? And it was, uh, accepted. It was, uh, something that the team and by team, I mean, the people who employed him felt was just something that you worked through in order to have him as a coach. Um, and, I think that that to me is where the change. I mean, we talk about the changing of attitudes, right. And the changing of systems, but the idea that these players are held accountable for so much like misplacing a pass or, you know, making a mistake or, or whatever. And these coaches are protected this idea that they can kind of do whatever they want and it's just the cost of doing business. It's a privilege that's not afforded to other people in this space. That's also a really, really weird way of believing how coaching or leadership should work. Right. Right. Like there, why wouldn't it be the case that, somebody could be an effective leader, an effective coach, an effective boss without being abusive or at least putting people in really uncomfortable positions. Right. Like, I'm sure there are coaches out there who can be honest with their players with they need, if they think they need improvement, but are also not, they don't do things that are toxic and they don't do things that are abusive. And, I, and that's not something that people just say in the women, the NWSL space. It's not even something people just say in women's sports. You know, people really like to give. What's the PG 13 word? <laughs> but <laughs> they like to give mean people the right to be mean. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the exact right way of putting it, right? And um I think that what we've also seen, you know, um yeah, were the statement that Chicago put out this evening was so disappointing, right? It it doesn't seem like something that the team was and this is another thing that's just continually shocking to me is they didn't seem prepared for this. And I don't know how that's possible if they were made aware of an investigation in 2018. And were literally around him, you know, um, the entire time. Right. And then, of course, they did get an email, I'm guessing, from the Washington Post saying, hey, we're going to publish this. Do you have comment? Right. Like, even if you are spending all of this time, and I guess, you know, if you want to cap it at the athletic story about Paul Riley, if you want to use that as a marker in the timeline. <laughs> If you think you're going to get away with it at a certain point, if you even, you know, after the league and the PA decide to open an investigation, whatever, when you get that email from a reporter 
saying, here's the stuff that I'm going to publish very soon. How do you not realize that you're not getting away with it anymore? And after just barely two months ago, watching this whole cycle happen to somebody else, right? how do you responsibly believe that you will get away with pretending that the uh, that his resignation is just him being burned out right and then issuing a statement hours after a story comes out and probably even more hours after you knew the story was coming out that doesn't actually address any of what's in it right and you look at the larger pattern here where um you know chicago loses staff pretty much yearly right they have assistant coaches leave. They lost their high performance trainer over, over this season. Um, obviously, you know, Scott Parkinson took the job in at Gotham, their former assistant head coach, or sorry, former assistant coach, Gary Kernin now works for Louisville. Um, and it was always, again, this siloing of power where Roy Dames was both the general manager and the coach of this team. And the other people within it who I do think cared very much for these players never stuck around very long. Um, and that's on, that's on ownership as well. I, I don't think you can talk about Roy Dames without talking about Arnhem Whistler. These two have been in this yeah. together for a very long time. Um, I mean, Arnhem Whistler is the person who for at least three years let Rory Dames get away with it. Right. Because according to the Washington Post, he was not just aware of the U.S. soccer investigation, but was interviewed for it and was told what some of the players who were interviewed for it said. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. I, I just think that at this point, you say that, you know, continually disappointed. I wish I could say that there was anything new here i think what we're finding is the same stuff that happened in with the richie burke story same stuff with the paul riley story um with farid benstidi with whatever happened in louisville which is sort of this intersection of bad actors and people who don't know what they're doing and those two things together have really left the players hung out to dry. And I, um, you know, probably my final thought tonight is, uh, that you think about that ineptitude element and this has Chicago's unwillingness to act, whether it was three years ago, two years ago, one year ago, six months ago, six weeks ago to now means that these players are about to go through the expansion process and they don't have a coach and they don't have a general manager. And so the uncertainty, again, with these rules set up by the league, which are pretty much anti-player themselves. Now, all of these players, I don't know what they're going through right now, but it has to be really hard. Um, And I also, again, want to commend the bravery of those who spoke up in this piece, Um, not only the retired players, but the players who spoke anonymously who are still playing in the league. Um, 
because as we've seen, retaliation is real and that's very scary. And I hope against hope that there is maybe a final thread here somewhere where the people who need to be removed have been removed. But this next step is absolutely the people who harbored bad actors. We still have an owner in Portland, right? Who has been implicated in some of this. North Carolina has absolved themselves from knowing anything about Paul Riley. We now have this happening in Chicago. We know Steve Baldwin hired Richie Burke. It's the beginning, but it just seems like it. we have yet to see the progress that means that these stories will no longer occur. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Any, any final thoughts, Pardeep, maybe on the bigger picture here, especially with the U.S. soccer being involved because they are doing their own investigation right now, right? They hired Sally Yates to investigate what's happening with the league. The headline of the Post article said, nobody cared. And I think that that is the half of this that we also need to be talking about as much as we talk about the abusers themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about bad actors. The people that have actively enabled these people are just as bad. They really, I mean, because a lot of them have put in hours they have put in work Mm -hmm. to make sure these people stay in positions where they continue to abuse their powers and abuse players they're the moral compass for a lot of these people and that includes the enablers does not exist because there is a really obvious human toll this takes really obvious and none of them cared right and they i have no idea from everything the red stars have done today i don't know if they care right from the way you know if you want to stretch into other stories the way steve baldwin continues to act i don't know that he cares right i the way gavin wilkinson maybe still has a job with the portland timbers even though he's no longer is it works with the portland thorns i don't know if merritt paulson cares you i think it's important that people i hope this story reaches people that don't pay attention to this league because part of the problem is that there's a perception that no one cares right and you know, if people who maybe don't pay attention to this league, maybe don't pay attention to women's soccer, it doesn't matter as long as they read it and understand it and take these players seriously. That is one tiny but really important step. But in terms of how this league operates and at the and even, you know, more U.S. soccer operates, I mean, there's a former U.S. soccer president when he was the president named in this story as somebody who didn't care. Yeah. It just, I don't know where you go with this league. And I, I, you know, it felt like it was rock bottom when the Paul Riley story came out. I don't know that this is better. 
I maybe it's worse. I don't know. It's I don't know how you fix this league with a lot of these enablers who didn't care, still in it, still with this huge ability to make decisions that ultimately are very detrimental to the to the players, to the people you ask to be the representative of the league on a regular basis. It's just such a cruel, cruel thing to do to them. And it's and a cruel can't. thing to do to everybody that <laughs> supports them. Right. Yeah, I guess maybe my final thought is I'll be really completely honest, and I really feel okay saying this here. I don't always know how to cover the league anymore. Um, I want to cover games. I want to cover players. I want to tell those stories because walking away from that and cutting access off to that, I don't think helps them, right? Fewer, fewer eyes, fewer ears. I don't think that that is good. I think that I have been, even before this story came out, reflecting on the ways I feel like I have been manipulated at times or the ways that I feel like I have believed things that are not true um, because you don't anticipate bad actors. or you, I didn't, at least, until relatively recently. You assume that people are acting in good faith. So... I will say that it's something I'm going to reflect on, but something like an expansion draft, which players have talked about how that's it's baked into the rules and it's not good for these players to have these people in charge of now. Again, I think, I think the California teams are great. I don't think that there's going to be anybody who doesn't want to go play for that team, but the idea of these, um, Leaders in these teams, maybe ownership getting involved, making these lists of who's protected and who's not and what that must feel like for these for these players. And so you cover it because it is important because it is the league. That's sports coverage. But you have to strike a balance with it's not just bad actors. It's this system that's been created. And so how do you report on women's sports like they are normal because we need to normalize the coverage of women's sports when everything else involved just feels so odd and wrong? Yeah, I, that's a, I have been struggling with that since the moment the Paul Riley story broke. Yeah, I have I, I haven't really been able to answer the question entirely. You know, some of the reporting I've done has been asking players how they feel. Yeah. Because that, I think, is just a really essential part of covering this league in this moment. Maybe always, but definitely in this moment. I don't know. And really, again, I think the thing that just looms over all of this is that right now, the only way this league has been held accountable or almost the only way is through journalists reporting right and then people and then public pressure getting involved right i don't know if rory dames i don't know if we're having this conversation if there isn't a washington post story to talk about today 
I don't know if we ever have that conversation. I don't know if Paul Riley still has a job today, if The Athletic isn't reporting today. And covering these stories, I mean, that is just the league at this moment. It just is. And this, again, the thing that I just continue to think about today is that I don't know how this league is going to fix it. I don't know how U.S. soccer is going to fix it. I do not know how people in positions of power are going to fix this right now. And so I think that sort of puts us all in a really awkward position of how do we do, how do we cover this league that isn't that, you know, there are games that are played most of the time. I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it on here, but journalists can't be HR for an entire league. You know, investigative journalism is really important, but the failure lies on the league level and the lack of, of internal recourse is one that we've been talking about this whole time. And I, maybe this ends on this. I really hope these investigations that are being done And I know that at least one of them is being done in conjunction with the Players Association. I hope that they are really trying to find wrongdoing. And I hope that people feel empowered to create that amount of accountability. I feel at this moment worried that so much of the ownership level is afraid, I guess, to actually be a leader in holding wrongdoers accountable. If I Um, may. Yeah, go ahead. I don't, I don't want to characterize it as fear on everyone's part, maybe a couple of them, but I think some of them are just, they were born and bred in broken systems. Mm. It's all they know. And then on top of that, they became the creators of broken systems. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is a little bit of fear, but I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of choice that goes into it. Yeah, you're right. right. And they have rationalized a lot of things. And it's not like, I don't think at the end of the day, you know, if you want to just use Rory Danes as an example, I don't think Arnhem Whistler would have faced too many consequences, real consequences for firing Rory Dames at any point. Right. Even if, even if people didn't know, which by the way, they should, we should always have known that if he was fired for misconduct, he was fired for misconduct. Right. But I don't think he would have faced uh, consequences. And why would he have? So that's not fear. That's, that is doing, that is making wrong choices on purpose. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I really do. Um, well, I wish for many reasons that this was not what we had to end this episode on, but um, it's a conversation that we need to have. Uh, I want to highlight again, and I know other people have said this, but I think it's true. It's so important that there are staffed reporters who care about talk about people who care the people doing this kind of investigative reporting it's not the easiest thing to do you have to have a legal department to cover things you have to make sure that your sourcing is uh 
is airtight. It's a lot of work and it's very emotional, right? And you also have to do the work to be trustworthy and win trust. Um, It is not a coincidence that these things are coming from the Washington Post and the Athletic because they have the resources to do this. And I just want to, to commend everybody who, who has dedicated time to that this year. Um, yeah, same. And well then, said. Yeah. And we will continue to try to support that as well as we can on our end. Right. So here's to the truth. Here's to accountability. Um, here are to the players in the NWSL. Cause you and I got to talk about a really great game today. And, um, we'll be back next time. We'll, we'll obviously have more to say, uh, going forward. I don't think this is the end of this story. And I also wish that I could say that I think this is the last story, but I just don't think it is. So more from us next time. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, I have to do this. I've been your host, Claire Watkins. Thank you party. Shout out to Jacqueline Purdy for listening in on this particular conversation. It was very nice to have her here um, and for producing this podcast. And um, shout out to Blue Wire uh, Podcast, our distributor. We will see you next time um, with more to talk about, I'm sure. So everybody stay safe out there. We'll catch you next week.